those who need leaders are not qualified to choose them. Michael Malice. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of Court is in Session. Um, I have another little introduction in my interview with Alec Prejorgi, who I'm having on the show again, a uh, good friend of mine. And uh, it's our longest uh, podcast to date. Uh, it's about an hour long, about twice as long as I usually have. And I want to apologize um, as my voice sounds a little choppy in it. We we do these over Discord and usually it works out okay, but I don't know if it had something to do with the length or just Discord wasn't recording very well. Um, but I think it's still listenable. My voice just sounds a little choppy, almost as if like if the speed is at one and a half times for whatever reason. And it's it can be a touch out of sync at times, but I think y'all can still get the gist. Um, I wish there was a way for me to fix it, but there's just really not. Um, but I think the conversation was one of my better ones with Alec, if not the best one. So it was definitely worth publishing, and I hope y'all enjoy it despite its shortcomings uh, audio quality-wise. And as my podcast continues to go on and I learn from my mistakes, I hope to uh, make sure uh, such issues are rectified. All right, so welcome back to another episode of Quarters in Session. I'm happy to have uh, my good friend Alec Piergiorgi on again because I, I don't have any more friends, so uh, I have to keep dragging him onto the show to come come talk about things. So thank you for, for being on, Alec. Well, of course, it's it's uh, always a pleasure, Cortland. It's uh, it's never a burden. No, that's that that just that dogs my cats. I think that's a good thing. I don't know. Um, so as I understand it, you have you you've come to the table with a hypothetical that you that you'd like to bring up and and discuss. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, so the hypothetical would be, um, it's also that. I guess to set some context or groundwork for this hypothetical, anytime we think about what our ideal government or our ideal societal order is, or any other societal order, it's always like it has to be better. Like, no matter what, it has to be better than what we have now. Like, excluding the absurd totalitarian dictatorships or anything. It's like, but this current system is so shit on so many levels that anything that even if it doesn't meet all of our needs it has to be better than this so the hypothetical that i thought of the other day was if uh they quote unquote come up to you and say you can organize how our government will be but the deal is you get to eliminate any regulations that you ca- any of the regulations that you care about and that includes like zoning um and those economic stuff like tariffs and stuff like that but we have to have a social democracy st- so like european style social welfare safety net um and it could be like more streamlined so you know minimum uh corruption or whatever um but that's the deal so it's would you take that deal of eliminating any regulations that you want, but we have to have a pretty large social safety net. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I absolutely would take that deal. I mean, for one thing, it would be it would be a definite step in the right direction, if nothing else. So if I have the opportunity to make a deal with the devil and make everybody's lives objectively better by having less government, then I'm absolutely going to take that deal. Um, so, you know, I worked at, at Fee for, uh, for a summer. And during our onboarding, uh, Larry Reed, who was the outgoing president, at the time, uh, gave us like a talk to all the interns, and he was discussing his philosophy. And um, I, I, I think I agree with him on a lot of things. And he, he's somebody that I look up to greatly. Like he's a really libertarian Christian person. Um, but anyway, he said that his philosophy is that he will work with anarchists or minarchists or libertarians or conservatives who want to, you know, whittle down the government more than it is already. And, you know, if we can, you know, make our coalition as big as possible to make it smaller, uh, then with whatever's left, we can we can argue about with what's left. But at the end of the day, we have a smaller government. And I, I, I hear your hypothetical, and that reminds me of of that kind of talk from Larry Reed because I I think it would be a definite step in the right direction and I don't really have any kind of issue especially with with a government social safety net as long as it's not forcing uh, people to to act a certain way. Um, mm. So, but would you would you reject the deal if the healthcare system? was the British healthcare system where there is, well, not, okay, not, that's not true. What about in the Bernie Sanders type healthcare system where there's no private insurance and you can only go through the state health insurance or state health systems? Would you still take that deal? Let me ask you this. Um, that's healthcare as in health insurance. Would there still be a, could I, and could we guarantee a private pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, I don't think any current system has a government pharmaceutical industry, if I'm not wrong. So I would say, yeah, you, you can have like private pharmaceuticals. Okay. Well, I mean, you say that Canada's kind of is, and even throughout a lot of Europe, it's so like heavily regulated that it's a lot of it is essentially like government controlled. Um, and that's mm -hmm. why in the United States, we have a horrible. So, okay, horrible. let's say it is. Let's say it is that. that yeah. It's bad. Would you still take it's the bad. deal? That would be a lot harder because the the uh, so we in the United States have a horrible, horrible healthcare system because it's kind of this weird, like public and private forces have kind of come together to make just the absolute most expensive health insurance possible. But we also have the f most free pharmaceutical industry in the world. And that's why something like, I think it's like 90%. And, you know, I, I could be wrong on this, but I know it's a vast majority of new pharmaceuticals come out of the United States. Um, and it's basically ceased in Canada and Europe, where a lot of them used to come out of, uh, because there's just been gridlock um, in, in allocating funding and figuring out what's important and um, having scientists come up with new ideas uh, because... If, if nothing else, government is, is fantastic at, you know, 
uh, squelching innovation. Um, so to me, the, pharmace- the private pharmaceutical industry saves lives. And to take that away would mean essentially the grind to a halt of, of medical science. Ali still would take the deal, um, but, but that, would be, that would make it a lot harder um, if, if we lost the private pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. But what about yeah. you? Well, if I had the choice between choosing that system without the healthcare factor, um, that system in the original hypothetical or our current system, I would probably choose that system over our current system, I think. Um, just because I think with the, such a reduction in the regulations, I think that would allow people to become so wealthy that they would the cost of the social safety net to their like taxes and stuff wouldn't be as comparably bad. So I think that sort of benefit, plus like the freedom benefits and everything, assuming it's also personal freedom. Um, that sort of benefit, I think, would overshadow having to pay so much for the safety net. Um, but what if this was because we have we have a different opinion on this topic? What if there was no Fed? If part of the deal was getting rid of the Federal Reserve? Yeah. So. Uh, my my opinion of the because I don't know so, I don't know if this, do the ladies and gentlemen of our audience know that you're uh, a Keynesian. You know Richard Ebling, who was the the president of Fee before Larry Reed was, called me a monetary socialist once. Yeah, uh, that's because... Richard 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 Ebling is a is one of the most based like libertarians that there have been. That guy is absurd. Uh, he's awesome. I love that guy. <laughs> I mean, he is like as hardcore as you can get. And people don't really talk about him much. Maybe because he's not dead. But like, I need more. People, I need more people <laughs> to talk about Richard Evelyn. Well, he's way too awesome. He is a an awesome guy. We got into a big argument because I I said something about you know <laughs> about the Federal Reserve, and then he's like. He's like, uh, I, I can't believe we have a monetary socialist working, working for fee like this. And so I'm like, you know, everybody loves Milton. Like, how do you not like Milton Freeman? How can you call me a? But it it, it was it was a lot like you know Ayn Rand when uh, this came about, and uh, Milton Friedman wrote something against. Uh, he wrote he wrote uh, basically a pros and cons pamphlet about uh, uh, rent control. Yeah, but it, yeah, that's right, rent control. And uh, he's like, it'll be better for everybody if we don't have rent control. And I got so pissed off that he was thinking about society as a whole that she called him a communist and left. Yeah, that was she was upset at that assumption. She was upset that the that the inherent assumption that there that you would consider society as a whole, like you said. And then she was also upset that he would even pose the question. Right. So one one yeah, yeah. Evelyn's based. Um, do you know um, this is this is going to be inside baseball for the audience a little bit? But we both attended FSU, and you went through the the economics degree. 
Right. And so you talk to a lot of our professors here, and a lot of them are free market. Right. Um, I, did you have any? Did you have any classes with Holcomb? My goodness, yes, I have the best story of Holcomb. So, so, um, so is he? Is because he is. I think he's a fellow. I think he's a fellow, or used to write for the Mises Institute. I um, believe that you're right. I know he's spoken for them a couple of times. You know what's funny? What's that? I was so the Mises Institute has like uh, their own podcast called the Mises Wire, where it's like their articles but in an audio format. And yeah. I was listening to one, and the fucking author brought up Holcomb. Nice. <laughs> And I was like, oh my god, that's incredible. So Holcomb is is so 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 base. He um he was James Buchanan, one of James Buchanan's uh students uh when James Buchanan was at UVA. And so I, I took his public choice class um when I was in grad school. So um I, I had the choice to either do an internship or I could do a doctoral level class. Took his doctoral level uh public choice class. And he gave us like a list of 100 books. He's like, you, you can still get an A in this class if you read none of them. Um, and uh, I think I still have that book list somewhere. And I, I just need I, to go through it. You need to mention. fucking send me that book list. You, you got it. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so he, like, one of them that was in there was his essay about privatizing the military. So, and he's like really, really hardcore. And he was talking about it in class once. And um, he, you know, he was he was railing against you know having a public military and uh, stuff. And I, I forget what brought it on, but I, I raised my hand in class, and I'm like, uh, Professor Holcomb, are you an anarchist? And he kind of like crosses his arms and like he's standing up and he kind of like thinks about it for a bit as if this question has never been given to him before. And he's like. Uh, well, uh, well, yes, I am. I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was fantastic. He is, he is, he that that class was such a whirlwind and of ridiculousness. And I, I loved every second of it. It's a, it's a shame that this isn't a video podcast, or else we would show a picture of him on the Mises website because it is just him. Staring at the camera like a deer in headlights. It's that... the most ridiculous picture I've ever seen. Well, is that that world. might be the same one as his FSU like official oh. portrait? Oh, really? Is it like twenty years old? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that it's probably it's probably the same one. <laughs> it's a ridiculous picture. What about Staley? Where does Staley stand? Um. Oh no! What I wanted to ask. Fuck the question I brought yeah, up. Yeah, sorry. Like, I, I meant to we can talk about, about people at FSU about all day. But... Where did where did where did um Holcomb stand uh stand on the Fed? Do you know? Oh, gold standard guy, absolutely. Oh, okay. gold standard guy. My my yes. thing with Fed, and I I've I've even softened a bit or hardened a bit depending on who you are. I've I've come a little bit closer to to Pete to you. Um, my opinion on the Fed at this point is. When the gold standard was around, that was the best time of the U.S. dollar. But then FDR happened. You know, presidents from FDR to Richard Nixon, you know, attacked the gold standard until eventually Richard Nixon did away with it. And now we're at a point, now that we're a fiat currency, um, where 
it would be so expensive and it would absolutely ruin our economy to go back to a gold standard because for one thing you have to you have to buy the gold i i don't think there's really enough gold at fort knox to be able to have a true gold standard and people tell me well you float the currency and and let the market decide you know how much gold is is worth a dollar well first of all you got to be incredibly open about how much gold the us actually has which that's not going to happen and two you're just going to throw the dollar into this period of incredible uncertainty we're going to lose our status as the world reserve currency because nobody's going to know how much it's worth and that's just going to be a time of of economic turmoil so what do you do you have a fiat currency you can't really go back to a gold standard what do you do the rules that a a, a central bank can use um, my two my two favorites that would go hand in hand are the the Friedman rule and the Taylor rule, and the Friedman rule says that you want to keep you know, you want to keep the growth of your currency about the same as you want inflation to be. So you you want your your Fed funds rate to be equal to about two percent because that's your goal of how much inflation is. So you target that two percent inflation rate. Um, and that turns into a little bit of a self-fulfilling proce- uh, prophecy if you do it right, because if people think that inflation is going to be 2%, it'll tend to kind of act that way. Um, and then you use open market operations by buying and selling bonds to get the Fed funds rate to about that 2% area. Then you have a currency that's growing uh, stable, that's stable and growing at about 2% a year. And in a lot of ways, that's acting as if it were a gold standard, if you're able to pull that off right. The problem is the Federal Reserve has expanded its scope to include so, 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 so much. And with every every kind of economic downturn we have, the Federal Reserve says, oh, look, we have this new tool that we can use that, that you know some economist came up with of some weird thing that's not really in our mandate, but that we're able that you know we're gonna be able to do because we say we can. And then five years later like, that was an enormous mistake and you know, who would have thought? So anyway, I went off on a huge tangent because I could talk about the Fed all day. But that's I have a, I have a I have a question. Sure. This is a hor- historical question, so it might be easier for the audience to understand. With the Great Depression, do you think the Fed did too much or too little? The Fed did exactly the wrong thing um so they should have not what friedman said friedman said that they did too little in terms of helping the economy yeah so kind of yes and kind of no what what i they that's a hard question to ask because what had happened was the you know black friday had happened and um there was an economic panic. And traditionally what a Federal Reserve is supposed to do in a time of economic panic like that is to um, make the currency, you know, Im- improve liquidity by by lowering, you know, the, the interest rate. What the Fed did was they raised it and constricted the currency, and then there was just not enough currency to go around, and, and that exacerbated the panic. So when Milton Friedman says that the Fed should have done more, that's that's the more he was talking about. Low, you know, lowering the the interest rate and allowing 
you know, money to flow more freely and for people to be able to borrow money. But it was an early time in, you know, monetary policy as as a science, but people get on to me for saying that, but as a, as a theory, I suppose. And so they did kind of just exactly the wrong thing. But I don't know if they I, did. Like, I don't, I don't know how to answer yeah, that question I mean, if, if they did too much or too little, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd probably just have to answer that I think they, whatever they did was wrong. Right. Because they're the Fed, so. Right, right. And it's their fault to begin with. Anyway, um, is that what you think? What do you think caused the Great Depression? I guess the final cap off of this artistic Fed conversation. Do you uh, think Herbert, the Fed caused the Great Depression? So there, there wasn't right. one thing that caused, there, there were two things that caused the Great Depression, not just one thing. The Fed definitely was a big part of it. Um, but it was it was two people doing exactly the wrong thing. So, um, the the when Herbert who and I can't remember if this was before or after the stock market crash, but it was right around the same time that Herbert Hoover passed a book of tariffs that was just massive. That was the Sweet Holly Tariff Act. That was the largest tariffs that we we've ever seen, and that like constricted. The supply chain yep. a lot because international yep. trade slowed down quite a bit because of these ridiculous protectionist policies. So that happened. The stock market crashed because, you know, the, you know that's kind of the business cycle. Uh, the, the private market does do stupid things. People were, you know, borrowing too much money and there was a bubble. Bubbles happened. So you had the bubble, you had the Smoot-Hawley tariff act, and then you had the Federal Reserve doing the exact wrong thing. And those three things are what caused the Great Depression. And then FDR mm. came along and, and made sure that it went as long as possible. Mm. And then World yeah. War II happened, and that brought us out of it. Well, a good... Well, I disagree with that, but we're okay. not going to get into that argument right now. But uh, um, a recent change that's going on in history... Finally, even though I learned the opposite when I was in when I was in high school or middle school, but it's becoming more and more widely accepted, even though it's it's been known if you actually paid attention. People are starting to realize that Herbert Hoover was the, not this free market extremist. This was this was a guy that laid the groundwork for everything that FDR built upon for the New Deal. Yeah. And 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 this is just something that wasn't. He was always presented as, oh no, this guy just he didn't do anything. Yeah. He didn't do anything, and, and that's why it, he, the government did not come in to save the situation, and that's why it's happened. Yeah. That's how it was presented when he fucking sucked. And yeah. and and Coolidge, Coolidge knew this, so Coolidge didn't really like him as his running mate, but he had to take him. Right. And uh, and Coolidge said, Coolidge would call him the Wonder Boy, because Hoover always had a solution to everything. Right. He always had something that the government could step in and do, um, which is a fucking great recommendation for Amity Schley's Coolidge biography. Okay. Um, one of my favorite books that I've read. It's fantastic. She goes into great detail. It's a great narrative. Um, and
she talked about he was, public, public works project. Yeah, out. well, I mean, he, so, that goes back to, to Woodrow Wilson, who, in my opinion, is probably yeah. the, the worst president we've ever had, because he really... May he remain in the, in the deepest pit of hell. Yeah, well, because he, he introduced the idea in American politics that there's an expert for everything, right? And that kind of yep. stuck around and never really leaves. So you have Herbert Hoover, who's like, uh, he was kind of the first like big government Republican where he's like, uh, you know, I'm a Republican. I, I guess I'm a little smaller government because, you know, I, I have to say that I am. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's a solution to everything. And that's never really left the public persona. I mean, Calvin Coolidge kind of walked that back a little bit, but Herbert Hoover brought it right back. And so, no, yep. like, like, it's great. People love to say that Herbert Hoover was this small government, super uh, capitalist guy, because it's it, it's a great way to say that capitalism was what brought on, on the Great Depression. But it's just it's yep. it's just patently false. FDR or one of FDR's right hand men said this at the time. He right. said this at the time while they're doing the New Deal. He was like, we got to thank, uh, not thank him, but like. We got to acknowledge that Hoover like did all this shit. Yep. We're just doing it on a way bigger scale. Um, so great books by Amity Schlaes. Um, I will but, have to. Yeah, yeah, definitely pick them up. I, I read Coolidge. I cried at the end of Coolidge. Did you really? Yeah, because like, because like it's told in a narrative, right? Because it's his biography, and obviously, I, I obviously I knew that he died, obviously, but. I never thought about it. And so then when I read this whole thing about this guy's life and then I get to the end and then Amity Slays just drops it on you, I'm like, fuck. So it felt like a character. You know, it felt like a character that I had grown to really like died. That's um, the mark of a really good biography. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. So, uh, um, uh, so it's just, it's just a really good, yeah, I just like, you know, I just like sat down and I was like, fuck when it happened. Um, but really, really great book. I'll have to reread that at some point. Um, but yeah. Oh, you said something before you said, you said, uh, Larry Reed was a Christian. Would you, did you say, did you say Christian libertarian or libertarian Christian? Um, I don't think those are the same things. Really, I, I, I was there's there's a comma in between it. So he was a, he's a Christian, he's a libertarian. Um, I don't know oh, what okay. I said. Uh, the difference between a libertarian Christian and a Christian libertarian, and which one would you describe me as? You know me pretty well. Uh, well, first, I think we have to agree on how to define them. Okay. So I would say. I would have to say Christian libertarian. Okay, Christian libertarian. Liber- I, I always, I like, this is like a personal, I, this might be because I'm autistic. I like this stuff. Like, I guess this part of linguistics where it's like this, these are two different things. Um, so what, what does it actually mean um, that you put them in an order? And I learned about this from a book called, I think, National Populism. Um, and it's a great book. That's another recommendation is national okay. populism. Um, it's about all these rising populist movements in Europe. 
Um, super great book. It's written by like these two British researchers. And they spend the prologue talking about this. They're like, why did we choose national populist over populist nationalist? Oh, no, no. national populism over uh, popul <coughs> populist nationalism, I think. Like, those were the two options. And so they spent like the prologue of the book determining, like, no, this is why we went with this one. Um, That's interesting that you're so, you're, you're a lot like Michael Malice in that. Like, you listen to Michael Malice talk about that, and he chooses his words very carefully, and he's very careful to define them. I don't know. The way you think actually reminds me a lot about Michael Malice, which which may be one of the greatest compliments I could ever give you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I certainly appreciate it. I mean, uh, definitely been a big influence on me. But um, but I just always always found that interesting. So I really like that chapter. So I recommend that book um, as well. Okay. Um, and uh, I can't remember their exact reasoning, but uh, it was pretty solid. So Christian libertarian, libertarian Christian. So I would say. The qualifier is the one that goes first. So it's setting the tone of the one that comes after. So Christian libertarian. I would say you're a Christian libertarian because I think the libertarian is... is, is fuck, now I don't know. What, you, would, you, would you say that, you're, that your Christianity, your libertarianism is more central to who you are? To me, my Christianity don't take is. Don't take okay. I, I would say that Christ, my Christianity is the is the most important thing to me, and in, in the way that like I I live my life. Um, so then I would probably have to say that you're a libertarian Christian. Okay. Because I the libertarianism comes after, so I think you'd have to say you're just functionally speaking, un unless I'm drawing these two things out into their completely different philosophies, but I think uh, I think you're a libertarian Christian. Okay, so that's probably how I would define Larry Reed as well. He, he would probably define himself as, as a libertarian Christian. But Christian anarchism is pretty cool, though. Like, Polstoy was a, a an anarchist, and he was Christian. Isn't that weird? Isn't that a little funny? I don't think that's... Did you know that? I, did, I didn't know that. I, I don't understand. I don't, I don't see what's funny about... like. I don't think that a core tenor to me Christian... it's just funny because it's old because he's an old guy. That's fair, and yeah. it's like oh, that's kind of based that he's this Christian libertarian. Yeah, it is pretty based. I, I don't see anything about Christianity that really precludes you from being being a anarchist. Or... No, no, there's yeah. been and there's some great books on Christian anarchism. Like Christian anarchism is kind of like at least in the U.S. like a fairly distinct thing apart from uh, regular anarchism. Like I watched, I watched a video recently that was like a, um, even though I'm familiar with all these different subsects, but it was like an overview of anarchism. So they went into a bunch of different subsects of the of anarchism, and they mentioned Christian anarchism, and I hadn't seen that before. So I I think it's something that's actually pretty recognized now as okay. a distinct section of anarchism. I have to do more um, research into that because yeah. it's just not. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to do more research into that. I don't, I'm not an anarchist. Same thing. Um, any stretch, same, but I think it's the same thing as well with Tolkien. I'm pretty sure. He, was he an anarchist? He, a, uh, he made some very specific comments that showed that he was on the route. In a way, like he would not be inherently opposed to it. Really, 
Um, yeah, yeah. I remember I remember reading about this, um, um, which made me want to look into it more. Um, uh, like never because he didn't really talk about that much. He he was a, he he cared way more about Christianity. Yeah. Um, but he it didn't seem that he was opposed to the idea, which is really cool. That is um, really cool. So, um, so it's awesome. That makes me want to read Lord of the Rings more. Have um, you never read it? No, I never read it. Oh, it's it's a wonderful book. You know, uh, I mean, people probably know this because I've seen this a few times, but um, Christopher Lee. You know, do you know who Christopher Lee is? I don't think so. Yeah, you know, from the uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory reboot with Johnny Depp, he was the dentist father. Okay. Have you seen that? I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, the Johnny okay. Depp one. Yeah. Well, he played, he played, um, he, I think, played Sauron in the, um, Lord of the Ring movies. Um, I think. I've never seen them. Um, he's the only one of those movies, the only actor to have actually met Tolkien. Um, That's he so met cool. Tolkien when, yeah, he met Tolkien when he's younger and he would read Lord of the Rings, the whole thing, once a year. Wow. Yeah. It's so a dedicated guy. You know that's crazy. <laughs> that's fucking dedicated. I can't imagine reading anything. Um, yeah. Once a year, like that's insane. I I've just finished Dune. Um. Have you read Dune by Frank? I Herbert? haven't. I haven't seen the movie either. Oh, okay, so I saw the movie, and uh, my friend and I, um, we we both immediately fell in love with this movie. Really, like, this movie. Is fucking fantastic. That's what I've it heard. Doctor Staley, so good. So Doctor Staley, the weekend that it came out, he flew to Washington D.C. to watch it with his friend, and he he like texted me one night. He's like, "Do you want to like get dinner? I I came up here to watch a movie, and I have nothing else to do." Uh, so like that, I've he he loved the movie, and I I've heard nothing nothing but just fantastic things about the movie. It, it's so it's so fucking good. Um. I liked I liked uh, Dennis Villanueva. I don't know how you say his last name. He's French, so it doesn't matter. Um, he's the director, and I love his other movie. He also made Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which I think is one of my favorite movies of all time. Because okay. um, his movies are beautiful. Like that's 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 the best. That's one of the best things about Dune is that it's just visually stunning the entire time. Right. Um. But so I just read that book, and that's a really good book. So I'd recommend that as well. Okay. Um. Uh. But it just reminded me of of Lord of the Rings because it's sort of this epic. Yeah. Um. A little bit. Um. But so, the politics of these of these older authors is always like super interesting to me. Yeah. Because a lot of the time when they talk about when they're making comments about what their political situation is or what's going on, it's so old. That you're like, oh, how does this apply to today? And that makes it fun. It does, yeah. And you can you can do the same thing with uh, George Orwell as well, except he was like a socialist, oh, yeah. which that's yeah, that's what's so weird about him. Like, like of all of those old authors, you'd expect him to be the anarchist of the bunch, but he definitely wasn't. But I, I don't. He no, he, he's so fuck. He's he's. You know, all, all he, he's only he's used as agitprop in political discussions nowadays. Right. 
So, so nobody wants any nuance. But George Orwell is so genuinely interesting. Yeah. Did you know that he was in Spain during the Spanish Civil War? No. On on the side of the socialists. Really? Yeah, he has a book called Homage to Catalonia, which recounts his time in the Spanish Civil War. I've got to read that book. Do you know do you know how fucking awesome that is? <laughs> that is so cool. That is so cool that he was in the Spanish Civil War. That is like yeah, I never I never would have guessed that in a million years. He's, he, yeah, that has always been on my list to read, is that book. He's an enigma in a lot of ways, because... Yeah. Like, you, you read... and I, 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 That's probably part of the brilliance of, of Animal Farm. I've read Animal Farm, like, three times. And, cause, and I think I've listened to it on audiobook twice. Because, like, every time I listen to it, I would I think, like, this is just about the horrors of, of socialism... But it's apparently not. It, it's it's just about the Soviet Union because it's an allegory. Um, but I don't know. I don't know enough about him to to say what would be the big differences between something like a Soviet government and and the kind of socialism that he wanted. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it was leaned more towards the anarchist socialist route. Huh. I think that's. Do you think he was an anarchist? No, but that's like that is you know like that's sort of the that's sort of the he exists in the green square, yeah, of the political compass. Which Hayek, I guess, to bring it circle to circle back, like Queen Saki says, um, to circle back to Hayek, Hayek wrote a paper or made an argument a while ago when he was alive that. Essentially, that green square cannot exist in reality. Um, there's no society where that green that green square has existed or will ever exist because he said, he said you can't have you can't have economic freedom, you can't have personal freedom and not economic freedom. He's like that just doesn't make any sense. And so then these researchers did a paper where they did that and they codified everything, and then they went through history and they were like, yeah, nothing exists here. Like out of all these major historical nations um, and societies, nothing exists in this green square, um, which is really cool. I mean, yeah, maybe that it's an interesting paper. Yeah, to circle it all the way back, would, mm-hmm. wouldn't that kind of be our our hypothetical that that you no, gave to me? In no, the because no, because the the it wouldn't be common ownership of property or the means of production. Okay, that's the okay. Yeah. So they they yeah, and that yeah. So, um. So that's green square. You can't have personal freedom on economic freedom. Um. So, uh, but like you can have like, no economic freedom and no personal freedom would be Stalinism. Um. Personal freedom theoretically, personal freedom, economic freedom is the U.S. And, uh, economic freedom, and no personal freedom is somewhere like, uh. Singapore, or limited social freedom, um, Singapore or um, Pinochet's Chile. Um, so those things have existed that would fit in that. Right. So, um, but not the green. Not the green, which is interesting. It's interesting. Uh, so I, I found that paper a while ago, and then I had to refine it because I was like, "Fuck, that's a really good point." 
Uh, I'll have to reread that now. Do you think because uh, it's never existed means that it never could? No. No. Just that it's, you know, it's hard to prove that's it's harder to prove something that will ex- will exist because it has existed right right so you have up until it happens you have the argument that it that it's not going to happen right so and at least you'd be backed up by the history of human civilization where it hasn't happened so you maybe you and then maybe you're just trying to explain why it hasn't happened so far right theoretically the only time it could happen is probably um like when there's no scarcity yeah, I would say, like you know, we have replicator machines. Maybe that's the only time it would work. I wonder if it could uh, happen. That's the only time it would exist. I wonder if it could happen if it was if if it was voluntary, like the the classic like a commune. Ex- yeah, like a kibbutz. Yeah, but none of those really exist on a large scale. Yeah, and like you can argue, you can argue, like, oh, that's not a fair indicator because it doesn't have to, but. It kind of has to be something that that will exist for a really long time and can work on a bigger yeah. on a bigger scale, because we have these huge human populations. Right. So, um, and that's how we grow wealthy by interacting with each other. If we don't interact with each other because we're all in our communes, nothing's going to happen. Um, but that is something that I've seen in political discussions recently, um, and we might be able to bring this into what we think might happen in the future, but um. A lot of the left nowadays thinks that we're post scarcity in some capacities. Yeah. Um, which I think is which I think is why they demand so much so many things, because they're kinda like because what one thing that I think what sparked is this why do we have homelessness? Homelessness is a problem that we can solve immediately by just giving these people homes. We have the money to do it, why don't we just do it? Right. And I think that thinking is because they think that we live in a post-scarcity world where because we have the money and the materials now, we're always going to have it and we can afford to do it. Um, and because, and just because we have quote unquote, have access to the raw materials, then there's no problem to getting it done. Right. It's kind of their attitude as well. And so they don't, and so they kind of don't think that we could lose all this money, um, which kind of makes sense because they are in a way progressives at least some of them are so they always think that we're going to go on to human progress and that's right around the corner um but that's something that libertarians are less keen on thinking like um and this is a big separation i think in in libertarians that if you use this frame a lot a lot more things come clearer um is there are progressive libertarians in the sense that they see progress in the future being um, like it's going to happen no matter what. There's going to be progress in the future and we're going to make progress and everything that we're doing is to make progress. And I think that separates them from a lot of maybe more conservative um, libertarians when they're like, no, there's, there's not this arc to history. You know, we can just as easily become poor again and lose everything that we have. We can't just assume that it's going to get better. And we also can't assume that that's necessarily a good thing. Um, like, is it actually that good that we're going and we're progressing in different ways? And I think that's a huge separation um, 
in the political divide today. That's probably yeah. like the biggest one. Um, and you can see that in libertarians. And then that's why progressives think in this like non-scarcity focused way. Because um, I the reason why I bring that up is because I remember I got confused a while ago because someone was described. Someone said, yeah, this neocon progressive or you no know, people were saying that neo new conservatives are progressives was what the argument was. And I was like, what does that mean? Because I only knew progressives in context of left wing. Right. And I was like, what does that mean for that? doesn't make any sense. Then it's like, no, because of this deterministic art, because they think that there are things that are inevitable, including the U.S. being the world empire, then everything that we're doing is moving us, is progressing us towards that goal. And that's, that's in the context they were calling them a progressive, which I think makes sense. It does make sense. Do you have any thoughts on that? You've thrown a lot at me. Um, while you were, I know. Oh, yeah, no, no, you're fine. Um, just while you were talking about, it, I couldn't help but you know pl- try to place myself in one of those camps. And of the progressive or not progressive? Yeah, and there are very, very few times when I would call myself a progressive, but I think I am. You know, I can't. <clears throat> you talk about the future. You can. You can t- talk about like the next. You know, maybe fifty, hundred years. You can't. You know, I can't say what's going to happen in two thousand years, um, or or whatever. If there's going to be some, I I don't think there's going to be in the foreseeable future any kind of great step backwards. I I guess I consider myself a progressive in that I I think the world will constantly just keep getting better. Um, it's weird because it seems like all around things are just getting worse, but. I, I think I think there will, what are you trying to get out? What are you trying to get out? I don't know. I think I'm just saying that I think there's going to continue. There's there's going to be there's going to we're going to continue to have innovation. I I think there's going to be fewer people who starve to death. Um, and I, you know, in that way, I guess I'm progressive. But I, what what camp would you put yourself in? Pessimistic. I think no. I don't know, but I don't think it's pessimism. Okay. I don't think I don't think that's the scale here. I think progressivism is an ideology onto itself. I don't think it I think being a progressive and being optimistic is two different things. So because I I think because I think Michael Malice is optimistic, but he's not progressive. Really? He thinks that we're going to win in the end. That's what he thinks. Yeah. But he, but he's not a progressive in any sense. At least I don't think so. I mean, maybe he is. I, I, I don't think so. From everything that I've seen of him. So, um, so that's kind of where I would fall. Sometimes, sometimes I'm black pilled, and sometimes I'm not. Um, but yeah, I don't think I'm a progressive in that sense as I defined it before. Okay. Because I think, and it's also kind of conducive to the Whig theory of history and the Whig theory of history is effectively just a socialist theory of history, but it's inevitable that we're going to reach maximum personal freedom. That's the Whig theory of history. We are going to reach maximum. We're going to reach, we're going to reach, we're going to reach utopia in the future. That is maximum freedom in every capacity. That's the Whig theory of history. And is the theory that's going to history is an arc to there. Is the theory that that's going to stick around and people are going to enjoy it forever? Because that that doesn't seem yeah. Realistic. That's the that's but that's what the social but that's any theory of history though. Any theory of history thinks that it's an it's an inevitable arc to this end point where then when we're staying at. 
it's uh an an approach and i this an approach to historiography and i and i like historiography a lot that's another personal interest that represents history as a journey from a dark and terrible past to a glorious present so it's always going to move in this direction it's always going to move in this arc and that's the same thing with um it's the same thing with the socialist theory of history, where it's going to move in this inevitable arc where we're getting closer and closer to socialism, right? That's how Marx goes through, the th- that's how he goes through history. A lot of what his writings are were not even economic, they were philosophy, obviously, and history. And he said, we, we existed in this state, hunter-gatherer state, whatever. Then we moved into tribes, and then from tribes we moved into serfdom, which was like the first true economic system. Then we moved into capitalism. Then we moved into socialism. Then we're going to move into socialism, and then we'll move into anarcho-communism. That's his right. arc of history, and that's why, you know, that's that's kind of why a little bit of the retard conservative critique of Marx is wrong in some capacity because Marx, Marx disliked a lot of aspects of capitalism, but that's because he was identified, he thinks to his mind, he was identifying the problems that are going to be fixed when socialism happens. Right. And so we know what's going to, we know what's, you know, quote unquote, what's going to happen in socialism. So we need to fix these things in capitalism so that we can get there. But he viewed it as a next step on the path of socialism. We have to go through this stage of capitalism, just like how we go, had to go through serfdom. But things are getting better each time, is what his point was. So he viewed capitalism as better than serfdom, but he viewed socialism as being better than capitalism because it's the next inevitable stage, which is why he would be in that position that he is. If you view that as the next inevitable stage, you're going to argue for that. You're going to make that your political ideology. Right. You know? So... So that explains some of that. I don't know if I don't know if that's you know that's important at all, but that's sort of like a meta a meta sort of commentary on Marx. I don't know. That's... Oh, and that's 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 the big split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Do you know? Do you know that's why that's that's the big split that happened in the Russian Revolution? I didn't know that was a big split. Now, so the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks are two different groups of people in the Russian Revolution, both communists. Um, and both were part of the revolution, but the Mensheviks believed that, uh, oh no, I might be wrong on this. That might not be the separation between them, but, um, I believe, um, yes, no, this is the separation between Lenin and Trotsky. Okay. Um, but Trotsky was part of the Mensheviks at a, at a time. He sort of jumped ship to the Bolsheviks when he saw that the Mensheviks were getting pushed out. And that is what happened. The Bolsheviks shit on the Mensheviks. Because um, the Mensheviks were less, I think, hard, ardent on the communism, um, but they were like anarchists, I think, and um, and so that that might be wrong. But Lenin and Trotsky split over this because, in Trotsky's theory, we have to go through the industrial stage of capitalism before we can get to socialism. And Lenin said. No, we can just jump straight to socialism. We don't have to go through this industrial stage of capitalism. We can build the industrial stage into the socialism that we're jumping to straight from agricultural. And I'm pretty sure that was a big separation between them. 
minus the inherent power struggles. Right, right. Um, but that was the separation was Strasky was saying, no, we have to go through this industrial stage of capitalism first, and then we'll become wealthy enough, and then we'll be able to jump to socialism. And Lenin said, no, we have to, we, no, we can just skip over that. So I don't know if that's interesting at all. No, that, that's, <clears throat> that's, that's really interesting. I don't, like, I wonder if, if Lenin kind of, it seems like later on in, in Lenin's time in office, he kind of went back on that a little bit because under Lenin, they, they did, they were forced to liberalize a little bit nor because people were yep. like starving. Yep. Um, and yep, I wonder, did, yep. and I wonder if he's just like that's just the state of the world we're in, or if he, like, crap, Trotsky was was right. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I know. I don't think he would be the type of person to recon his own thing. I don't think he'd be the type of person to to say I was wrong, right. or to say this isn't necessarily incoherent with what I was saying. Right. I think he would try to justify it still in his terms. Right. That's probably a good point. So. Um. So yeah, a little inside baseball for for that sort of area of economic thinking and stuff. Um and that's kind of it's kind of similar to what you and I were talking about earlier before the podcast was I'm really interested in the people behind these concepts and the people like the people of history who they actually were in their personal lives besides everything else that they did. Um which I think a lot of people, a lot more people, should be interested. In. I think but so nobody too. Nobody really likes history. Nobody, no, you know, nobody likes. Yeah. Well, everybody likes to think they like history, but people don't think of of people as as people more just like platitudes. Yeah. yeah that that's that's a fucking crazy. That's a great observation. That, and that's sort of like, I don't know what that is. That's a limitation of something. That when we put somebody into history. We're not we're we're putting we're we're presenting them and acting as if they're two dimensional, right? And it's it's way harder for us to think about them in any three dimensional sense. But obviously, everybody that we interact with on a daily basis, and we consider ourselves three dimensional beings. But for whatever reason, when they're put on the page, we cease to think like that. It's I don't know if that's a limitation of language or or, or human concept of the past or something, but I think that sucks. Oh, if you get what I'm meaning, if you get what no, I'm I know meaning. exactly what you're saying, and I I don't under I, I don't know why history is studied that way or how you like it may just be because most people aren't really all that interested in history. I think that's what it is. It's just easier to do it that way. Yeah, but I, yeah. I it's dangerous. I not 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 even dangerous. I don't know. I I think it's it's a disservice to history as as a concept. And then, and then you want to know how they learn about people in the past in a three-dimensional sense How's that? they watch fucking hamilton right they watch hamilton by lynn lin-manuel miranda on fucking broadway which i i guess they're probably not doing right now and um and that's their fucking sense of history yeah and then all these assholes gotta act like hamilton is the coolest fucking guy on the planet yeah. um and he's so and he and he's so awesome and he oh of course he's the best founding father when these retards couldn't even name him five minutes ago yeah and this guy should be in fucking hell next to Wilson yeah yeah I don't do you hate Hamilton as much as I do I don't know about as much as you do um I I I, <laughs> I, I do absolutely hate Alexander Hamilton though 
You, you know, have you ever watched the Tom Woods Michael Malice debate on Alexander Hamilton? No, doesn't. Uh, yeah, Malice you gotta fucking a, watch that. Is it Michael Malice? Is, Michael Malice is a huge Hamilton yeah. guy. Yeah, I've never, I, I never understood that. I still don't understand his argument, but he refuses to budge on that. Um, and <laughs> so you gotta watch. I this is another recommendation to the audience. You gotta watch this. It's um, it's the Hamil- it's the Tom Woods debate. Is Alexander Hamilton a hero for the cause of liberty? That was the resolution that they had a debate on. Wow. Michael Mal said yes. Tom Woods said no. That sounds awesome. I've got to give that a watch for sure. It's great. It's great. It's so entertaining because it's Michael Malice, obviously. Right. And um, but Tom Woods is just a great educator. Yeah. So his points are just like crystal clear, and he explains them gr- uh, perfectly. Yeah. Uh, so that's a super super interesting watch. Even if even if you're just like interested in history, you're like, oh well, what is more of the story to Hamilton? And they give you more of the story. Um, so definitely, that's a strong recommendation. Um, but Hamilton's a fucking evil. Yeah. So, so then people, that's their interpretation of history, and then, uh, and then they kind of approach politics now the same yeah. way. Um, they refuse to look at any of these politicians or any anything that's going on in a three dimensional sense, which is kind of fun. I mean, it's kind of fun to watch. Oh, it's fun to watch that it's it's this good it's good against evil, and everybody thinks they're good, and the other side's evil, and that's just that. And there's there's no actual humans like there, but it's you know. Yeah. It's dangerous. And uh, it's, <laughs> but I think we both fall into the trap. We both fall into the trap sometimes where we do like coin thinking. Yeah. We're like we only think that there's two sides of the coin. There's only two sides to the issue. There's only two sides of the situation. Definitely guilty um, of that. And everybody every yeah, and everybody falls into that right. where we you just think it's way simpler than it really is. Yeah. Um but so let me uh let so I, I i generally like to keep these a half hour we've blown yeah, past yeah, that sorry, and we're, sorry, we're closer to an hour now um which it feels like it's been 10 minutes this has been just the best conversation but i do kind of want to that a question has has come up um that i've been thinking about mm-hmm. um kind of back to our original scenario because if i'm not mistaken I thought you were at one point, maybe you're not, but you, you're of the opinion that you kind of want to accelerate uh, the the crumbling of... <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about acceleration. Yes, accelerationism. Yeah. <clears throat> where to, to if, if people don't know what that means, uh, and I'm going to define it now, it's going to correct me. Uh, it's kind of you... you Wanna things are so bad right now. We're heading towards, you know, this being a bunch of rubble. Let's get that over with quicker. Um and that way we can build something better from the rubble. Am, am I am I that's the cliff notes on it? Yeah, pretty much like you kind of think that if we turned everything that's currently going on to eleven, then we'll get to the collapse of civilization faster, okay. or the cal- collapse of this system faster. Okay, um, pretty much. It, yeah. So that's why a lot of people supported Yang. Right. They thought that Yang was the accelerationist candidate. Really? I didn't. <laughs> yeah, Man, that's a good meme. I, I, I really enjoyed when people were talking about that. Because they just thought the idea of just giving people money would just so obviously completely destroy everything. 
that we just get to the collapse of the system way faster. Are, are you an accelerationist? No. I guess I'm an accelerationist in the collapse of this system, but not in a collapse of society or civilization. Okay, so that was um, that was like through that lens. I'm thinking back to our original hypothetical, um, because I I would think in in your original hypothetical, you know, you can keep the social safety net, but get rid of all the regulation that you want. That would make things probably more more stable i would think um and keep this around longer would that be a good enough trade for you to uh not want to accelerate the ending of of the current system or would that be a change enough in the system to to appease you what change uh the the hypothetical that we said before you you can get rid of any regulation that you want but keep the social safety net and if I think that that would be accelerationist? No, would you, would that, would you still be an accelerationist if, if that? Oh, yeah. um, no, because I think kind of in that hypothetical, that's how it would always permanently be. Okay. I think in the context of that hypothetical, it, uh, if we're not going by the context of the hypothetical, just and this might be more autistic separation, I don't know. But to me, these are two separate things. Right. Um, in the context of that hypothetical, that's a static system that cannot be changed. That's how it is permanently. Right. But outside of that, would I still be an accelerationist? I'd have to see how bad it is. Yeah. Um, that's kind of my thinking, like, that's it's kind of my thinking why I consider myself more of a minarchist than a anarchist because I kind of would want to get to minarchism and then see how it is. Okay. And it's like if it's really not that bad, then maybe we can just stay here and we don't have to go the full way. Um but if it's still kind of shit, then we'll just go the full way. Right. And that's probably how I would approach that new system at first. And then if it's still garbage, then I then I guess I'd become an accelerationist again. Makes sense. So that would be my answer. Yeah. So we've blown. All right. Do you have any? Oh, sorry. Are you reading anything? Well, this will be the cap off. Do you have any recommendations on what you're currently reading? I'm still reading the Fountainhead. Uh, <laughs> I'm in law school, so it, it's that's taking up all of my time and all of my ability to read. And um, I just bought um, Osama bin Laden's Letters to the World. Uh, an English publisher took all of his like major uh writings and and put them in a book and sold it and everybody got pissed off so you can only buy it on like ebay now um but i bought that and i'm i've been getting really into like the way that evil people think um as of late so that's kind of part of that bend that i'm seeing like how how awful people think and that kind of came from like ted reading ted kaczynski's uh, you read the Unabomber Manifesto? I did read the Unabomber Manifesto. And one thing that I found about really, like... Why didn't you tell me? We could have done it as a book club. I, I, thought, I thought I told you that I read the Unabomber Manifesto. We, we could do a uh, book club at some point of the Unabomber Manifesto. It's not that long. I could probably, I'd probably want to read it again. Um, but um, the thing about the Unabomber... Are you saying he's evil? No. Because you said it, you said well. You said before that it's fun getting okay, into the okay, minds okay, of okay, evil okay, people, okay. and then you went to him. How dare you? You, <laughs> you not think Ted Kaczynski was? He's a hero 
He's a hero. Court. He was well. First of all, he was a mathematician, so that makes him per se evil. Um, anybody who's that into math is is an evil. You know, he was part of the acid experiments that the CIA was. No, doing. I didn't know that. Yeah, at his time at Harvard, he was part of those LSD experiments. Of course, where they were tripping people on acid and then fucking them up. That makes that makes so much. And sense. And then guess what? He becomes fucking the Unabomber. <laughs> the after Unabomber, that yeah. I mean, I would. But then soon after that, he leaves Harvard, and then he starts doing all this weird shit. Or not Harvard. This might have been when he taught in California, probably. I mean, yeah. So yes, I would. I, yes, he's an evil person in that he mailed bombs to people. That's a pretty evil thing to do. Oh, he didn't hurt anyone. Did he not? I thought he killed people. Yeah, he didn't kill anyone. He didn't kill anyone. I thought he did. He did not kill anyone. I don't. I mean, I. I will. We'll, we'll get Jamie to fact check this. Right <laughs> <on the side. laughs> I uh, I uh, did the Unabomb. I'll try and look it up right now. Kill anyone? Uh, oh, what? He killed. Okay, he killed three. People. Okay, yeah, he killed people. I think that he killed three people. When did this happen? I don't think he killed three people. I think it's like a psyop. <laughs> like the CIA wrote. I the think this is a CIA psyop that he killed anyone. Um. Uh, anyway, so that anyway, so, so going back to what I was actually saying, um, I've been getting into reading the manifestos and writings of of really evil people, um, bad people, people that society looks down on. If you would like Alec, um, and I don't know, that kind of brought me to get uh, that book that of of essays by Osama bin Laden, and eventually. Yeah, that's cool. I'm gonna get to read it, and um, I actually that's because cool. eBay because I screwed up on eBay, uh, I accidentally bought two. So next time I see you, I will give you my other copy. Oh, that's yeah, that's, that's that's a gift cool. for you, my friend. Do you ever read Gaddafi's Green Book? I haven't. Should I? Yeah, apparently it's like really cool. It's like a bunch of like political philosophy that's kind of insane. No come. Um, uh, but it's like apparently it's like really good. Okay. Uh, in the sense of like it actually does a good job explaining everything. Right. Um. Oh, Evo Morales said that it was a major influence on him. The Mormar Gaddafi book. Yeah. Wow. Wow, I didn't know about that. Huh. So what? What do? You... Yeah. So oh, it consists of three parts. Solution. This is the last thing. Solution to the problem of democracy, the solution of the economic problem, and then the social basis of the third international theory. It's socialism. He's a, he was a socialist. Okay. Um, yeah, but like kind of like a weird Islamic socialist. Mm. Um, I think. Uh, but for me, with the book question, I am currently reading cronyism. Uh, let me see cronyism. Um. Get the cronyism. Um, it's a long book. Uh, cronyism, liberty versus power in early America, 1607 to 1849. And it's written by Patrick Newman, who's a fellow at the Mises Institute. And it's a, it's a history. Uh, it's exactly as the title suggests. Um, cronyism is, you know, sort of like this cringe collaboration between businesses and government. Right. Um, and, but it's not, it's not socialism. 
uh, and it's not and it now it's it, it's not corporatism in the sense of the specific corporate structure, but it's cronyism. And so he's talking about how uh, you know it's political cronyism and economic cronyism, and uh, and he goes through all these you know he goes through the early history of the U.S. So he's talking about Jefferson, Hamilton, um, Washington, and all these people that were part of this thing, and he's talking about the crony bullshit that they were doing, um, and. This making me hate Hamilton even more because Hamilton was a big government guy and he wanted all these public projects and all this economic planning. Do you know the companies uh, that he was going to have do these projects and then he was going to have um, doing like handling all this stuff that he like all this regulation that he's doing? Uh, the companies of his friends. Naturally, yeah. Companies of political allies, companies of other politicians that he was working with. And, and it's just like every time. And th- this is what he's pointing out in the book. It's like all this bullshit. Um, and, uh, and a little fun fact of a hint of what you might get if you read the book is the decision to place the Capitol in D.C. was a cronious deal between Washington and Hamilton. Really? Washington was going to veto. I just read about this. Washington was going to veto a bill that um, Hamilton was going to give. Because at the time, the Capitol was in New York City, and some people wanted to move it to Philadelphia. Other people wanted to move it. Washington wanted to move it to Virginia, where the, another cronious part of it is. So he, so then he made this deal. Hamilton said, I'll, you'll sign this bill that I want to sign. Because Hamilton, because uh, Washington was going to veto it because he thought it went too far. But. Washington said, "I'll I'll approve this bill if you move the white if you move the capital to Virginia, um, because he didn't want too much power in right. the north. He said, "I'll sign this if you move the capital to Virginia, and you move it to where it is right next to my estate, and you buy a bunch of land for me." Perfect. And that was the deal. And Hamilton said, "We'll buy, we'll do that, sir." And so then that's that's how the capital was moved there because it was a cronious deal between Washington and Hamilton. I will definitely have to read that book. I'm actually I'm Facebook friends with Patrick Newman, and oh yeah, okay. and he keeps posting about it on his Facebook page. And I yeah, I, <laughs> I've been seeing it a lot, and I need to to read it. Uh, so yeah, I have it on Kindle. Okay. It's free. I'm, I think I'm like 25 percent of the way through it. Um, it's really solid. It's really solid. Um, and then liberty versus power, the subtitle, because that is the frame of history that he's right. using. So whenever you do a historiographical look through history, you sort of go in with a set of frames um, and that'll judge how you look at different groups of people. That's how you separate groups of people. So he goes to the Rothbardian frames of throughout human history, there has been a battle between people that want liberty and people that want power. And he's using the separation to break through the founders. And he's saying that like, the anti-federalists, Jefferson, Patrick Henry, Sam Adams, these people were on the side of liberty. And the big government people, the federalists, Hamilton, Robert Morris, they're all on the side of power. Fascinating. And so then that's, yeah, that's how he's breaking it apart. So that's really cool. I'll have to give it a read. So um, anyway, uh, that was... Anyway, that was a fantastic conversation as, as usual. It I can't believe it was over an hour. That absolutely flew by. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Um, it's an it's an absolute mm-hmm. pleasure every time. 
time you hop on. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's 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 always a fun time. Court's a great person, um, and he's a he's a good host, so it's never a problem to come on. Thanks again. See ya. <laughs>